Hey, welcome back. It's Business of Film, episode number 21. My name's Jesse Eichmann, and you're listening to a crafttruck.com podcast. I'm going to title this episode Kicking Ass and Taking Names with Sherry Candler. Sherry uh, is just awesome. She gives us the straight goods. This is no holds barred. This is what you need to hear if you are producing uh, and, and are a filmmaker in the indie film business. She does not hold back. She tells it like it is. And uh, I got to say, it was awesome talking to Sherry. So, Sherry, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, to anybody who's listening, if you've got any questions for Craft Truck, feel free to tweet them at us at Craft Truck. Send us an email, coffeecrafttruck.com, and we will do our best to get them answered for you here on the show. Thanks. Enjoy this episode. The place to begin is certainly just to tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, how did you begin in the industry? How did you get started? Just tell us a little bit about who, you know, Sherry Candler is. Right. Well, I got started in the industry, um, probably much like a lot of filmmakers get started. It's, um, I was always interested in filmmaking, but and I studied it for a bit in university, but noticed very soon into the studies that it wasn't my talent, um, that I didn't have the patience for editing, and um, that you know production wasn't my um, bag, really. So I started studying more about um, marketing and sort of also went down the broadcast track uh, and then sort of got um, sidetracked and went to Europe and worked for about um, 10 years overseas uh, in the marketing department, first of a cell phone company in Russia and then in the broadcast manufacturing um, sector with equipment for broadcast and marketing equipment across Europe and the Middle East and Africa. Um, so when I came back to the States, I you know, sort of took up my interest again in filmmakers and being closer to independent film by working at a local film festival. And that was around 2008 when everything started to come apart as far as, one, the economy, but two, um, the changes that were starting to happen in distribution led to a lot of companies closing. And um, I would talk to filmmakers at the festival and say, well, what are you planning to do with your film after you know you're on the circuit, and most of them did not have a plan and weren't looking at ways to connect with audiences or even thought about distributing films on their own. And that was a time when the video components of the internet were really starting to improve, and you could stream something online, and you could use social networking, which I had been, you know, playing around with personally. Um, you could use that as a way to tell people directly about your film. And I thought this is like custom made for filmmakers because you got video, you got pictures, you you usually people who make films have quite a personality and they can talk to people and you can find people of interest. And I thought I would take that skill and work for um, you know, a company, a distribution company or sales agency or whatever to um, to help connect the films that they had with an audience and found that they were not interested in that. <laughs> that their real business was selling to other businesses. So their real Sorry, business is yeah, selling... Let me, yeah, let me ask you, which... So th this is just to give some context. Can you tell us which company, like, specifically we're talking about, or, or do we need to stay in the generalities here? 
No, this is in generality, interviews that I had been to and conversations I had had at film um, events, film-related events, where distributors were not open to the idea of hiring somebody to do social networking for them because they thought it was really something that kids did and it wasn't something that their buyers were interested in because their buyers weren't on social networks either at the time in 2008. I mean, really, 2008, most businesses were not using social networking. It wasn't considered a business tool at that time. I think Facebook had only recently implemented business pages, you know, on their site. Uh, And MySpace was mainly taken over by, you know, all kinds of anonymous accounts. And there was a lot of spam. And (laughs) it wasn't really, yeah, it wasn't really being used in a business context, but I could see how it could be. And so I devoted an awful lot of time to studying and, and experimenting myself on how would you reach an audience with a film and working directly with filmmakers instead of with companies because I don't think that most filmmakers realize that distributors don't have direct connections to an audience. They have connections to exhibitors. They have connections to big box stores that sell DVDs. They have uh, relationships with broadcasters. Those are all business-to-business relationships. Those are not business-to-audience relationships. And they use tools like advertising and publicity to blast out a message to an audience that they don't expect to speak back to them. And and that even prevails today. For the most part, there are distributors themselves have no audience for their work. They have no audience for their business. You know, it's, they it's interesting. hide behind the title. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very, very interesting and, and specific distinction. It, is, it reminds me, it even goes back to, there was a study done uh, and this is this is decades ago. Um, there there was a book uh, that came out on. Uh, I'm trying to. I, I think the book was actually called In the Cut, uh, and it goes back to a study that was done uh, where they looked at the brands, specifically the brands of all the major distribution labels, and we're talking United Artists, like the original incarnation of United Artists, uh, and mm-hmm. Columbia, and TriStar, and all those big brands. And what they found was that there was absolutely no relationship between the brand and whether people would go to see a movie. So, you know, fast forward to today, if you put, you know, Universal in front of a movie, that doesn't necessarily mean people are going to go see the movie. So when you talk about the the difference between a business-to-business relationship between a a distribution company and, you know, just blasting out a message to millions of people... And an individual consumer uh, having a relationship with their audience, you know, really person to person, um, it's, it's a very interesting distinction to make and one that we haven't yet heard on this podcast. So um, that, that's really, really, really neat. Can you actually so definitely continue with that thought? I just didn't want to I know I interrupted you with that train of thought, but it was just worth worth mentioning. Right. No. And that's um, it, it's also it, it's not that it's. Um, Maybe it is a little bit of a new thinking, but previous to having um, social networking tools and um, crowdfunding tools and things like that, there was not a big need for being directly connected to an audience. Audiences expected to see ads, they expected to see billboards, they expected to see things on television. They didn't expect to be able to speak to the artist directly. 
But that's definitely changing. I can see it in my own young kids that they, um, they have such loyalty to a lot of musicians that they like because they follow them on Instagram and they talk to them. Um, they follow them on Twitter and the, the banter goes back and forth. It's like this new opening up where for and I don't think that this was much different than really old days before advertising really took over as a, um, an industry. You had to, to have localized, you had localized businesses where you actually knew the customers who came into your shop, say, or where you actually knew the banker who worked in the bank and, you, and he knew you by name. We suddenly, we, we, in the 1900s, we kind of depersonalized all of that and globalized it so that you couldn't possibly know all of your customers because they weren't in your local area. Well, now we're coming back to that era where you can. We can know a lot about the people who like our work, buy our work, where they are geographically, what other things are they interested in. We can ask them questions directly, and they can answer, and we can hear it. You know, those, those things weren't possible even six or eight years ago. Um, so it's, this is whole new thinking. It's also something that's becoming um, has become difficult, especially for old world artists and old world thinkers who are in the distribution and um, and studio realm of this idea of talking directly to people. Um, well, they, we, they don't, uh, that's not part of their thinking. That's not something that they ever had to consider before. Yeah, and well, it's hard. It's yeah, hard well, to make that. Well, what you're talking about, obviously, is is filmmakers, you know, owning their audience. And and you're, mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're a digital media, if I'm not mistaken, at least from what I've from what I've read about you online, uh, you would bill yourself out as a digital media strategist. Would that be a uh, sort of a correct summation? Yes, but it's all, it all starts back sort of to marketing, the basic marketing principles, which is who is my audience? Who am I making work for? And a lot of artists don't think like this. They don't think about the audience. In fact, they think that's somebody else's job. I just make work, and then somebody figures out how to tell people about it. Well, and let instead, me ask you. you need to be thinking about exactly the characteristics of those people because we can't do any digital strategy until we have who we're trying to attract so we know where to go and what to use to attract them. Well, let's actually just start to, you know, get into this a, a little bit more because there's there's a very, I would say, big distinction right now in terms of the, the very specific who of targeting a film. And by that I mean, take, for example, the two very separate types of movies, uh, a an independent drama, which might do the film festival circuit, and a very targeted, uh, I don't know, either documentary or uh, movie about a specific targeted group of people with very specific likes, interests, uh, and not like demographic information in terms of, you know, females 18 to 24 or something like that, but just a a very specific demo in terms of this movie would be good to, uh, you know, fish lovers or bikers or... Uh, you know, a, a very specific group. So again, the, the the two movies at play are, you know, indie film festival drama, w- where yeah. I'm almost going to challenge you to define the demo of that, versus yeah. a very specific demographic. And so, when you're creating a digital media strategy, you know, how do you deal with? I mean, because if you know what the movie's about, if it's very specifically about a you know a group of of of, of you know fish lovers, well, you can mm-hmm. you can find those people very specifically and directly. But if you're talking about an independent drama about a family unit or something like that, 
you know, how do you go about doing that? How do you go about doing that? How does a studio or how does a, a distributor go about doing that? You better have names in your film, names that are recognizable to an audience. And so a name that you don't have to tell me where I know this name from or that the film has gotten such prestigious awards and critical acclaim that that's how you sell it. And it's called a, a um, critic-driven film. Um, those are the only ways that you're going to sell a, an indie drama um, that has no identifiable storyline that's, that's connected to an, a specific interest group. So if you're making a film that's low budget, it's a drama, nobody's in it, you have no connections to uh, big festivals, um, packaging through talent agents, the, uh, the festivals that you go to are regional and they don't have big footprints and you're not likely to get big reviews, stop. Don't make that film. Because the world is flooded with those, and they're going nowhere. So don't make that. If you have made that, um, you know, you can do the best you can to put it out, but it's not going to be highly successful. Those are not the films that get picked up and put out for wide release. Wide release or any kind of release? Well, really, for any kind. There, there are some that get picked up and put into catalogs and sold in bundles, you know, to to fill in holes in the programming schedule on a broadcast or to, to you know, less and less to fill up a rack space in a DVD section of a store because those uh, sections are closing or becoming much smaller. Um, but those films, for the most part, there's so many of them being made that most of them will never go anywhere. I, I was I brought up a statistic actually um, to to talk about on this podcast in thinking that twelve thousand two hundred and eighteen films feature films were submitted to Sundance this year. Sundance I bring up only because that's the biggest sales festival in the United States. So if you get into Sundance you have exponentially higher results to get a distribution deal. And a lot of Sundance films fall into the category you just mentioned. Dramas, um, you know, very festival-type films, maybe edgy kind of stories. Sometimes they have names, sometimes they don't. Um, that's the festival you want to get in if you have that kind of film because your chances of getting a distribution deal are much higher. But only 121 of those films were selected. That means that 12,097 films that are finished, that are features, are all vying for a distribution offer. 12,000. And that's just this year. And that doesn't count the people who are still in production making even more of them. So it is so so difficult to find any kind of significant distribution deal if you're making a film that didn't get into Sundance and has no identifiable audience attached to it. I'm actually, so I'm, I'm saying don't make it because it, it, it will have nowhere to go outside of you can try selling it from your own website, but I don't know any filmmakers that are doing it successfully that they've recouped their budget and can make another film with that. Right. I, I, I mean, I, I actually, I'm happy you, you, you said that. I wasn't sure what the, I actually wasn't certain what the answer was, was going to be, but your answer is not only very direct, uh, it's also extremely consistent with uh, what a lot of other people who have been on this podcast are saying. Cast, mm -hmm. identifiable market, uh, you know, specifically, you know, targeted group. Uh, but if, in the absence of those things, you're, 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 you know, 
you're fighting a very uphill battle. And that statistic, I, di- I didn't know that statistic, which is, it's insane, you know. And I was just reading an article the other day, um, which was, it was talking about supply and demand in the film industry. And mm-hmm. at a very simple, you know, macroeconomic level, we're reaching a point in the business where supply is far outpacing demand. For sure. And, you know, you, and, and the, the parallels were you go back to the days of, you know, Quentin Tarantino and Reservoir Dogs and Robert Rodriguez and, and you know, and, and when he sort of broke onto the scene. And there were hardly any, you know, just as, as a percentage of the total movies made. It was, it was uh, you know, extremely limited. So you actually, filmmakers actually had the opportunity to break out. Whereas now, just being noticed is... It's it's just incredibly difficult. So I, now I have to say though that there is a pathway. There is a pathway. People don't want to hear about it, but there is a pathway to the, to the breakout that would be equivalent of a Robert Rodriguez or a Quentin Tarantino or even a Steven Soderbergh, which is that you come up through the programs like the Sundance Producers Lab, Directors Lab, Screenwriters Lab. Or you come up through the ISP labs in New York where they, they groom filmmakers and films specifically to go to those big festivals. There are advantages to this that are many. One, it helps to polish your project and really get it into shape that it needs to be in order to be a good product. But two, it puts you in front of mentors who are very connected. I'm talking about agents, distributors, sales agents, um, uh, big time producers, people who can champion your film and validate your talent. If you are not in these project pro- programs, the trajectory of the film you're making is not going to be the same route. If you go to and most of these Sundance films that you like out this year, trace it back to where they came from. A lot of them came out of San Francisco Film Society, the Sundance Labs, Film Independent. IFP, they got big grant money from some of those programs. Grant organizations like to back films that they feel are quality, which means if you get one of those grants, the industry looks at you totally differently than somebody who pays for their film on their credit card. Um, they tend to help you find other money. Once you grant, get grant money from one organization, other organizations are interested as well as in helping you. And not only are they giving you money and they're giving you mentorship, but you are suddenly boosted a lot higher in the priority list. You're, you're, you have a spotlight put on you where you've been chosen out of this pool of the 12,000 films that are being made, they are looking more at your talent and your film. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to have more success, but your trajectory is different than all the people who are not in those programs, who do not receive that grant money, who do not have those mentorships. So if your real goal is, I want to make a film to make myself known in the industry, you need to get into one of those programs. You need to, because those are the going to offer you the best chance of it. Making a short, putting it on the festival circuit and hoping somebody sees it and thinks you're talented, put it on the internet. Don't put it on the festival circuit because industry people don't go and look at short films on the festival circuit. For the most part, they don't go to short film festivals and nobody buys short films. So there's no money to that either. But if you can make it a hit on YouTube you can get it out there if you can consistently, instead of putting money into making a feature film, put the money into making 
consistently good quality stuff on the internet where you are building an audience around your work, that's another way to get people interested in what you're doing because obviously people like it. Look how many views you get. Look how many comments you get. Look how much money you can raise on crowdfunding because you have these subscribers. This is a way to get attention. Making the short and and playing it in 50 short film festivals and spending the money, that's you're wasting your time. That's not going to help. Yeah. And the same with making these films and then put, you know, having it premiere in Texas or having it premiere in North Carolina. It might be good for your ego, but it's not doing anything for your film. So uh, don't yeah. do that. <laughs> or no. don't expect that you're going to get something big out of it by doing that. Yeah, I think that's... That's fantastic advice and and very specific too. Uh, again, I, I like Sherry. I like the way you think. This some really okay, this, yeah. that's all. I mean, that, that's. I mean, first of all, few few people seem to be thinking the way that you think, which is you you seem to have a very clear idea. In fact, you, I mean, I, I'm saying you've got a very clear idea of exactly how to get your film from from point A to point B and the ways to do it and what not to do. And that's awesome. Um, like very, very, very valuable takeaways. Um, so let's let's actually talk about what you're talking about now, which is because uh, I think you're moving to a certain degree into this whole notion of um of crowd crowd financing, crowdsourcing, uh, building your audience through short films, if that's the way that you're trying to do it. So let's talk about the whole idea of crowd financing, crowdsourcing. You know, what are your? I'm just going to throw this out there. What are your thoughts on trying to go out there and 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 do that? Not only on the the financing side of your film through crowdfunding, mm-hmm. but also on the independent distribution side through platforms like, you know, Tug or Gather or Seed and Spark or some of those, uh, you know, specifically designed sites to help you DIY your distribution. Right. Okay, so first we have to step back again into the who is your audience and do you have one realm. Because you can't expect to raise crowdfunding money if no one knows who you are and they don't care anything about what you're making. So that means in order to raise money through a crowdfunding platform, either you had to be active in the social space and have built up quite a following, both for your work and for you personally as an artist, or you need to start doing that right now because you're not going to be able to crowdfund successfully or to DIY distribute successfully if you have no audience that is waiting to see your work. Um, and that's also another thing that filmmakers don't, one, realize, and two, want to accept, is that first you have to have an audience before you can ask them for money. <laughs> so you, you can't start building an audience by asking people to pay, because they don't know you, they don't know your work, why would they be connected to what you're doing? Um, if you have, if you're making a um, work for a niche, like we were talking about, you know, an interest group, a charity or a social cause. Um, Those are easier to tap because you know where those people are, but first you're going to have to cultivate relationships with them. You can't just jump onto Kickstarter and say, well, uh, you know, my film has a big religious slant, so all religious people should want to give me money. They don't know you. They don't have any relationship with you. Why would they give you money? You know, is it, how do you feel when somebody on the street comes up with their hand out and says, hey, can you spare some money? You, 
you turn off, and that's the way they do in the online space as well. They're going to ignore you. They don't know you. You could be anybody. So you have to spend some time cultivating that audience relationship, which means you better be active online, and you better be putting out some kind of work consistently. And that's where we go back to the short content. Rather than putting all the money together and making a feature, why don't you make little short pieces that show me what kind of artist you are, what are your skills, what kind of stories you like to tell, what's your point of view as an artist, so that I can figure out as an audience member, am I attracted to that? Is this something that I want to see more of? Do I want to support this person in their endeavors in the future? But there's groundwork that has to be laid. You can't even jump to, should I use Tug or Gather? Should I use Steven Spark or Kickstarter? If you don't have an audience, it doesn't matter. Nothing's going to work anyway. So first, you have to cultivate that relationship, which again, like we were talking about earlier, is very difficult for artists to realize because they think, all I need to do is make good work and people will just find it or it'll be somebody else's job to find them. That's not true anymore. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a lot of a lot of distributors, a lot of investors, a lot of agents are checking you out online and looking to see, does anybody know this person? Does anybody care about this person? Is there, do they have an audience that we can tap and expand on that will be beneficial to us? So if you want to make yourself attractive to the industry, you better have a following. If you plan to uh, self-release and raise money on your own, you better have a following. So it all goes back to getting active online, learning everything you can about creating in the online space, not creating in secret and then putting it out into the world. That's the old model. That's the old way of doing things. That's the way the studios still work, but they have hundreds and thousands of millions of dollars to devote to it, and you don't. So you can't think like that. You can't so, compare yourself to so what they do. Let's, let's just start from the premise. Um, and first of all, I, I should say, that what you're what you're talking about here uh, is is also um, uh, the same as Emily Best was saying on our interview uh, with with her Emily. For those who don't know, uh, is uh, the CEO of Seed and Spark, a curated crowdfunding platform. And what you're saying and what she was saying is that you you should not be confusing the platform uh, with the method of distribution. That is to say. Just because the platform exists and you are on the platform doesn't mean that because you're there, you're going to actually see results, which goes back to what you were saying, which is you have to have your audience first. So let's just assume for a moment that you've got an audience, um, okay. whether that be, you know, through, uh, I mean, there can be any number of ways that you've cultivated an audience. So you have an audience. Now you've got to decide, you know, what to do with that audience and how to, to take that audience. And let's just, and, and let's move this conversation forward from, I have an audience. Um, I've either self-financed my film or raised money. Uh, uh, but I haven't used a Kickstarter to raise money for the film per se. You've got your audience, you've got your film. Now what? Okay. Then you can start looking at these services, like you're talking about, Tug, iTunes, uh, Distrify, VHX, once you have an audience that you can distribute directly to, now you can use those platforms. And to me, they pretty much all do the same thing. I'm, I don't have a favorite site 
to to do streaming from. You could use Vimeo Pro. You could use VHX. You could use Assemble. You could use Distrify. It doesn't matter. You know, it depends on, I guess, how you like the look of it and how the player looks on your site or whatever. But the, the method of being able to stream directly to your audience where the money goes right to you. You don't have to really go through two or three different middlemen to get to those people because you have the direct connection. Then you can start distributing. Now, that doesn't mean that that's the only method you're going to use. In fact, what I have found in my own experience with helping filmmakers to distribute on their own is once you show that there's audience interest in your film, distributors start showing up where they didn't before because it looks like you have something successful to sell and that's how they make money when they have something successful to sell. So if you've proven that you have an audience and that audience is, is buying from you and you're getting some buzz and people are talking about your work, that turns people's heads. And they will offer you alter, um, opportunities that you may not be able to get on your own, foreign sales, broadcast sales, educational market sales, things that would be very time-consuming and connection-dependent um, are things that you're not going to be able to do on your own. Well, the, but you actually, can do that. Yeah, the, this right? actually, no, no, I was going to say that this actually raises an, an interesting question. In this whole DIY world of distribution, mm-hmm. should you even be doing that? Is that an element of first resort or an element of, I went to Sundance, didn't get picked up by a distributor because there's only so many products that any distributor can pick up during the fi- mm-hmm. during during the year, and that is I mean that that is limited to something like around 600 films, let's say uh, across all the distributors for an entire year. Um, actually, that that's I know I think the statistics actually much less than that. The independent films that were distributed back in 2012 was something like 160 films or 180 films. Uh, and that was back in 2012. I don't know what the 2013 statistic is, but if that's all the distributors distributing all of the films through their distribution uh, networks, that leaves every other film in the world to you know and filmmaker out there to to think about DIYing it. So the question is, what comes first here? Should you be thinking of getting distributor first? Should you be thinking of DIYing it first? Well, if, like I said, if your film is not on the trajectory of having a lot of help and a lot of connections and uh, the possibility of going to an A-list festival, then DIY, direct, I don't like to call it DIY because you're not doing it by yourself. Um, direct distribution, self-financed distribution, because let's not forget that you have to have money to do this. It's not free. Um, self-financed distribution will be your first stop because you're going to need to prove that you have an audience. Um, and so far, you haven't been able to by being picked up by any other entity that believes in your talent and thinks that you will have an audience for your work. So in that case, plan A, because you'll know ahead of time, am I going to be in Sundance Labs? Am I going to be in the IFP? No. Uh, am I going to get a grant from the Ford Foundation, from City Reach, all this? No. Okay, then... I'm not on that. Or am I going to have enough money to have big names in my film, like really sellable names? Because that's another aspect. Is if you're making a higher budget film where you're paying, you know, quite significantly for big talent in your movie, that can change the trajectory of your film. But if you don't have that, which I would say probably the majority of people listening don't, then self-finance distribution is your first stop. And you will be planning how to do that. And you can launch in the festival if you want to. It's 
probably not going to be an A-list. That's fine. Um, but very soon after that, you're going to roll out. Now, I would not suggest that you roll out to places like iTunes, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, those places, because those are the realm of either aggregators or distributors. So they don't look as um, unfavorably on a film that's distributed via your own website as they are a film that went and got an aggregator and put themselves on iTunes because now you're cutting them out of some significant revenue if you're going to put the film out in a broader space like an iTunes, Netflix, that kind of thing. Sorry, can you actually just so explain first- that? Can you just explain that once more because I, I don't think that that thought came out exactly the way you wanted to. I just want to make sure that I and our listeners fully understand what you just said there. Right. Okay, so the sites we talked about previously, Distrify, Vimeo, Pro, VHX, all of those are self-hosted tools that you can put on your own website and other people can host on their website, personal pages, personal websites, to distribute, to stream work online, even in a global way. But people have to go to your website in order to buy and to watch. Sites like iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, Xbox, all those other bigger distributions or third-party distribution, digital distribution sites, cannot be accessed by a filmmaker on their own. They do not deal directly with filmmakers. You have to go through an approved aggregator or an approved film distributor. Right, and, and, you're, you're, suggesting, your, and, you're, and you're suggesting to not do that. No, I'm, I'm suggesting not to do that if you really do want to have wider distribution than what you can do on your own. If that's not even a possibility, if no, if no, film, no distribution company is interested in picking up the rights to your film, yes, you can absolutely go to an aggregator and get onto the... An aggregator is somebody that you pay a flat fee to generally, and they get your film QC'd and put onto iTunes, um, and you can you know, put it on iTunes globally if you want to, if you don't think there's going to be, you know, much foreign sales interest from third parties of your film, you can distribute. Say, I know from my website analytics that my film is going to be really big in Brazil, but there's no Brazilian distributor who thinks that that audience is big enough to satisfy them. So I can distribute directly to people in Brazil from my own website or from from the iTunes store. Right. That's fine. You can choose that because you know that from your own uh, analytics on your website, you can see, or from your own uh, email subscription list that hopefully you're building from your website, you know where your audience is. Now, either you can take that information and go to a distributor and say, I have this many thousands of people who are interested in this film in your country. Is that interesting to you? Depends on what their tolerance level is of how much money that represents to them, whether they're interested or not. If it's 200 people, probably not. They're probably not going to be interested. But 200 people buying your film from Brazil is important to you. So selling it, making it available for those people is a smart business decision. But it may not be a smart business decision for a distributor to want to take the trouble to pick up your rights and try to put the film out to please possibly just 200 people. That's, that doesn't make sense for them, for, for business. So you, um, so your decision on going into other platforms is dependent on how attractive your film is to other distribution entities. But for sure, distribution entities offer you more than the ability to distribute in that country. They usually offer you 
promotional opportunities, maybe some that you wouldn't be able to get on your own, and often when they will um, front the money for you in advance. So you won't have to pay to promote your film in Brazil and in the UK and in France and in Germany, which can get very, very, very expensive. You can have these entities who agree they will pick up the rights to your film in these countries or for certain territories, um, and they will fund the money for the promotion. Of course, they're going to take that money out of the revenue that comes in, but they're dealing with that. You know, they're in the local market. They know the publications. They know the critics. They know how who to deal with to get media placed, and all that's off your plate. So it's almost, in some ways, it can be worth it to let them have revenue because it's less work for you, and it could still end up in having a wider distribution than what you would have on your own. But if that's not a possibility, you can still distribute in your own, on your own, but it means that you have to take on those responsibilities for promotion. It means you have to buy ads. It means you have to seek out publications for coverage. It means you have to go after the critics and try to get it reviewed. Um, all those things that you may or may not be prepared to do. So you have to think very early in the process, how am I planning to distribute this film? Do I have the financial and labor resources to do as wide of a distribution as I think this film should have? And if you don't, you're going to have to scale back what you think is going to be possible. And that means scale back in your budget. It means scale back in your vision. Because you're, it's not realistic for you to go, this is a wide mainstream film, and I just know it's going to reach into this wide audience, but I haven't funded anything for it, and I'm just rolling the dice and hoping that somebody's going to pick it up. Those are not good places to be, because well, yeah, no, well, <laughs> you have no guarantee. That's a very high risk that you're taking if you haven't thought about this ahead of time. Yeah, well, what I like about what you're saying is, is, is there's a very realistic set of expectations that the filmmaker should have when they go in to the process of making their film and things that they should be thinking about even before they've even started rolling a frame of film. And if you don't dial those things in off the top, you're really going to be floating around in no man's land, you know, a year later when you're trying to deliver your film, especially if you haven't cultivated an audience by that time. Uh, Or if you're just floating around as one of those, you know, thousands of films that don't get into Sundance. uh, And you weren't brought up through any of those lab programs. So I, I like the specificity of what, of what you're talking about and how filmmakers should should think about distribution even before they get started. So let me just ask you this question then when it comes to, because I, I think we're, we're kind of talking about that just but tangentially, um, which is the whole idea of return on investment and mm-hmm. um, investors actually getting to the place of making their money back. Uh, what are your thoughts on ROI to investors in the film business and how filmmakers should think about being able to return dollars to investors, uh, either you know, in terms of when they're making their upfront presentations to investors for their films, um, how they should be communicating return on investment to in- prospective investors, and more specifically, you know, if you know how they should set, how they should set their expectations for ROI, uh, you know, when they when they first start out. Okay. Well, this is not going to be a very popular um, sentiment, but here is what I truthfully think because this is what I see constantly, so it's based on reality and not on what we hope. ROI in independent film is generally about emotional return. It's not about financial return. 
people who invest in independent film are not usually giving you their last dollar. Um, they are not. They should not be realistically expecting to ever get repayment. What they're usually trying to buy into is a mindset, an artistic form, a party or a big celebration, and being aligned with something that's that they can be proud of. And there are a lot of things that we spend money on in our life that don't return financial of the investment. They don't return a finance um, objective. We buy yachts. We put our names on buildings. Um, we donate to charities. We don't ever expect money to come back to that. The reason we're giving the money is because we want to be aligned with that. It says something about who we are as as the person who's uh, giving support to that. We're giving support to something we believe in. So filmmakers should really make an effort to make investors feel that they're participating in something that is life-changing, world-changing, that will make a difference in the world, and that you would want to be aligned with if you were supporting that. And it's really what crowdfunding is about, except that we do, you know, crowdfunding is smaller amounts of money. People who give money for crowdfunding, it's a donation, and they don't expect to have that money recouped. And it's also reason why I think crowd investment is not going to take off. The mentality of the two people giving, a donor and an investor, are totally different. An investor gives money for greed. They want the money back and they want a profit. A person who gives a donation doesn't expect money back. They expect something to be done with the money. And they give money to think causes or something that they believe in. It could be a person, you know, that they want to see this person succeed, they really enjoy their work, and they have no other motivation for giving money to that. That's what a film, an independent film investor should be coming from. So I know that a lot of filmmakers like to make a business plan and show how they're going to get their money back, but as recent statistics have shown, only about 7% of independent films ever make their money back. That's not even profitability. That's just getting your money back. And it could take five years to get that, and those are just the lucky ones. For the most part, there isn't going to be a financial return. But here's where the responsibility is on the filmmaker to make sure that the work they're making provides another form of return which means that this is going to be something that these people are proud of, that they were happy that they support it, that it somehow changed the way people think or made people feel. Um, people are also proud to say, the film I invested in is playing down the street. It's mine. The name is on the marquee. I got to go to the opening night party. I got to go to the set and meet the, you know, the stars. I got to be an extra. Those are some of the things that people invest in film to expect to get. So you have to be thinking in those terms as well. How can I give that kind of return for the investment they put in my film and downplay that money? Because it's a lie. It's a lie that they're going to get their money back. That's, and that can't really be the place they're coming from. They can't really be giving you money thinking that they're going to get it back with a profit. We're, first of all, I, I, I want to thank you for that answer because it's, it's, it's a very, uh, again, uh, as everything you've, you, you've said today on the show, is very practical, it's very real, um, and it's also very true uh, about not only the, the, the business side of the film business, 
uh, but also, you know, how investors and filmmakers should think about their expectations in, in that respect. So, I mean, I feel like the last 40 minutes has just flown by. But if you wanted, if people were to connect with you, Sherry, uh, after the show uh, and seek out more of your advice, uh, how best should people reach out to you if they wanted to, to touch base? Well, um, I'm all over the internet, so you can just Google my name, Sherry Candler, and you would probably find my website, sherrykendler.com. I'm on Twitter all the time, even on my smartphone, no matter where I am, I'm on Twitter. Um, at Sherry Candler is the, is the handle. Um, I also work for a nonprofit organization called the Film Collaborative, and that's thefilmcollaborative.org. Um, we're an educational uh, organization, but we also handle some forms of film sales and distribution that are... Um, our differentiator is that we never take rights over the work, which is very different than what most distributors and film sales agents do. Um, they do take your rights, and they do uh, keep them for a long period of time trying to maximize profits out of that work. For us, we want to maximize profits, but we want the majority of it to go to the creator, not to our slate. We don't actually keep a slate. Um, you know, we help to uh, broker deals, and we help to make agreements between filmmakers and other entities, but we don't place ourselves in the middle of it. It's usually a flat fee, or we get a one-time commission, and then it's up to you and the entity you signed with, which is very different than what a sales agent normally does. Um, I'm also, I have a Google Plus community that's devoted to film marketing and distribution advice, um, and you can find that, you know, on Google Plus. Uh, I have a Facebook page as well, Sherry Candler Marketing and Publicity. But one of the things that people should know ahead of time when they contact me is it's better to contact me early in the process so that we can really sort through what's realistic expectations for the distribution and marketing of your film. It also may mean that I will look at a script and you will tell me what you want and I will say, you know what, that's probably not going to happen. Um, unless you put these things in place, this is not the story to tell to achieve what you want to achieve. And there are also a lot of filmmakers who don't want to hear that, you know, and so that they can go to find somebody else who's going to promise them other stuff. Um, and that's fine. Um, but if you come to me very late in the process, which for the most part, that's what filmmakers do. They have a film in rough cut or about to premiere at a festival, and they want to explore the distribution options. Um, it's much more difficult to have options if you don't have any money in place, any audience in place, and you have your fingers crossed for a distribution deal. Um, in that case, you just need a sales agent and hope for the best because that's how you're going to get the deal. Um, or unless you're going to, you know, premiere at a, a world-class festival, and then even in that case, you would probably need a sales agent to broker the better negotiations than you could do on your own. And I'm not a sales agent, so that's not what I do. Um, but as far as the marketing goes, marketing plans should be in place before you shoot one frame of your film. It's very difficult to formulate a marketing strategy for a film that's already been made because there were so many things that could have been taken into consideration that would make the marketing successful that after the film is shot, you're very limited in what you can do. Um, and, and it'll be limited in your success if you haven't taken some things into consideration ahead of time. So it's best to contact me early rather than late. Um, but, you know, then I also do give consultation advice on how to handle social networking sites, you know, how best to populate them, how to gather uh, followers, how to, you know, um, 
uh, incentivize them to join an email list, how to work with them to set up, you know, tug screenings or something like that. We can talk about all those kinds of things, but um, they will only be successful if, they're, if the film has uh, an audience to tap into or has an audience that's already been started. Awesome. Sherry, thank you so much. This has been, we're going to have to do this again. I feel like, again, we just, we've only scratched the surface. So I'm going to have to get you back on the show, um, you know, sometime in the future. And I just want to thank you for taking the time and sharing all this knowledge with our listeners. This has, this has been great. Well, thanks for having me.